Thomas Merton once said, every moment and every event of everyone's life on earth plants something in his soul. Welcome to the 82nd episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want everyone to remember that while we are all shaped by the things that happen in our lives, we are never bound by them. There is always hope. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, a new survey reports 69% of women under the age of 30 say COVID-19 has harmed their mental health. We turn to 19thnews.org for details. Almost 7 in 10 women under the age of 30 said the COVID-19 crisis has harmed their mental health per a new survey data from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Further evidence that the pandemic has taken a deep, uneven psychological toll. Between women and men, women are far more likely to have seen their mental health decline over the past year. Women between the ages of 18 and 29 were more likely than any other gender-age combination represented to report mental health declines. But the gender disparity exists across all age groups. 55% of women said their mental health worsened because of the pandemic, compared to only 38% of men. The data did not account for non-binary people, and it did not examine sexual orientation. Separate research suggests LGBTQ people are likely to have suffered undue mental health burdens over the past year. Data collection by Ipsos Public Affairs showed that between August 21st and December 21st, about a third of LGBTQ people reported their mental health had declined, compared to about a fifth of people outside the queer community. I wanted to delve into this information for a few reasons. First, it's helpful for those of us who've experienced a negative impact on our mental health during this pandemic to know that we are not alone. While it's great to focus on the positives that we take away from this whole experience, it's also important to recognize the difficulties that we've faced because only by recognizing these difficulties can we move in the direction of healing. Second, we have to acknowledge and work on this disparity of mental health experiences. There is a clear sign that something is seriously wrong in our society. Women are suffering. Our LGBT sisters and brothers are suffering. And we have to continue to advocate for a mental health system that prioritizes these groups and others who are experiencing mental health symptoms at a higher rate than the general population. It is so vital to encourage women and members of the LGBT community to get into mental health, into the mental health field, and for the field to grow in its ability to provide adequate screening and culturally competent treatment for those in need. And finally, this knowledge helps us to prepare. When we see a survey like this, it should encourage us to take a step back and evaluate how we're doing over the year of this pandemic, to look at the areas we can work on in our own mental and emotional health, to take some time for ourselves, and to spend a moment to consider what healthy coping skills we need to bring with us as we transition back into what our lives used to be. On to the next topic with the pandemic leading so many of us to turn to mental health apps for supportive therapy. One question comes to mind, how private are they? 
WFLA gets us started. Mental health apps are becoming increasingly popular and offer a range of options from guided meditation to appointments with a licensed therapist. But mental health apps aren't always covered by the same medical privacy laws like HIPAA that protect the information you share with a doctor in person. And even when HIPAA rules do apply, they may not cover all the data the app collects. What companies tell you about what they do with your data is often pretty vague and confusing, and it's usually buried in privacy policies where it can be hard to find. Consumer Reports looked at several popular apps and found that many of them send information to third parties such as Facebook and Google. This kind of data is often used for advertising and other business research, and while it's a common practice, it may not be something that you'd expect from apps that deal with mental health. Consumer Reports didn't see these apps sharing details about a person's condition or what they're telling their therapist, but they may be letting other companies know that you're using a mental health app. So if you've been listening to this podcast during the pandemic, you know I'm very excited about the innovations the COVID-19 crisis has sparked in terms of mental health service delivery. A lot of startups, apps, and other non-traditional services for our mental health have grown out of this moment, and I really believe the easier, more affordable, and faster access to mental health services is a wonderful thing. Of course, confidentiality and privacy are not typically top priority when it comes to new technologies fresh on the scene, and this has to be something we consider as we access services for our mental health through these new means. It also has to be something the regulations catch up with. We need to be advocating for laws and ethical guidelines that keep up with the way mental health services are being delivered, because the last thing we need is for people to avoid reaching out for help and to continue suffering unnecessarily due to concerns about privacy. Always be sure whether you're reaching out for support through these new means or starting to meet with a therapist in person to make sure you understand the policies around confidentiality and the limits of confidentiality so that you're never caught off guard or worried about the unauthorized sharing of information. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to St. Teresa of the Andes. Born in 1900 in Santiago, Chile, Juana Enriqueta Josefina de los Sagrados Corazones Fernández Solar, who would later become St. Teresa of the Andes, was the fourth of six children. Juana received her education in a college managed by French nuns from the Sacred Heart Order, and she remained there from 1907 until 1918. In 1914, she decided to consecrate herself to the Lord and become a discalced Carmelite. She was known to be pious in her character, but could also be stubborn and vain. She lost her temper on some occasions. In September of 1917, she sent a letter to the prioress of the discalced Carmelite convent close to her home, expressing her desire to enter the order. Then, on October 18th of that year, I think this is a fun little story. A nun distributed candies to the children, but she grew frustrated when she was given a small piece, so she hurled it out of her hand and refused to accept another piece that the nun offered her. I I do love her spunk. On May 7th, 1919, she entered the novitiate of the Discalced Carmelites in Los Andes, at which time she was given the new religious name, Teresa of Jesus. She later received the habit on the following October 14th, and toward the end of her short life, the new nun began an apostolate of letter writing 
training in which she shared her thoughts on the spiritual life with others, but she soon contracted typhus that was diagnosed as fatal. However, some historians have suggested that she might have contracted the Spanish flu, which was devastating Chile at this time. Sister Teresa was still three months short of turning 20 and had six months to complete her canonical novitiate so as to make her religious vows, but she nevertheless was allowed to profess her vows in articulo mortis, or facing death, on April 7th, 1920. Sister Teresa received the final sacraments on April 5th and later died one week after Easter. Thank you to Wikipedia for some of these details. St. Teresa of the Andes is a wonderful saint, one whose stubbornness and attitude at times helps me feel like I might even have a chance at this whole sainthood thing, and I think she'd be happy to intercede for me and anyone else who finds themselves living with a similar personality. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Oh, my Jesus and my mother, may I belong to him forever. May nothing on earth claim my attention but the tabernacle. Preserve me pure for yourself, so that when I die I can say how happy I am, that at last I can lose myself in the infinite ocean of the heart of Jesus, my adored spouse. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Fran gets us started. My brother struggles often with clinical depression. I don't know how to help him in both a Christian and physical way. He's often needy, and it has harmed my marriage, but he's still my brother. Let's start by praying for Fran, her family, and her brother for peace, comfort, and help with knowing the best way forward. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. It is so wonderful that you are looking for ways to support your brother, especially considering the fact that his support and his uh, need for support has made things difficult for you in the past. It's such a testament to your strength and love, and it's just a beautiful witness. It's so important for us to remember that while as Christians we are called to help those around us, we are not called uh, to allow those around us to harm us in the name of helping them. Jesus does not expect us to be doormats. Jesus does not expect us to sacrifice our relationships for the sake of helping one person. Jesus does not expect us to sacrifice our own mental health for the sake of helping another who is struggling with their mental health. I know it can be hard to acknowledge, especially when we've been taught about self-sacrificial love, but it isn't helping anyone if we're allowing someone to use us in an unhealthy way. And helping someone while also setting boundaries around what that help looks like and when it's available is a healthy thing for all involved. This includes setting up expectations for your family as well, when you might need to take the time to help your brother and when you need to prioritize your own family just so everyone can be on the same page. All that being said, let's take a look at some ways you can help your brother from everydayhealth.com. Just listen. Listening and providing emotional support really does make a difference to people dealing with depression because it's common for them to isolate and withdraw. To offer depression support, listen with empathy, meaning try to step inside the person's shoes and show compassion and warmth. Don't try to fix someone with depressive symptoms or say how to feel or what to do. 
Next, do research. Giving depression support also means learning as much as you can about the condition. Find out what depressive symptoms look like and try to understand the condition. It's important to recognize depression is an illness, just as if someone you love got diabetes. Next, keep in mind that although you understand the process of depression, it's very different than comprehending what the person who is dealing with depression is feeling. Next, help find a therapist. It can be difficult for someone with depression symptoms to pick up the phone and make that first appointment to get treated, but you can help by researching therapists and offering to make the appointment. If your loved one doesn't feel a connection with one therapist, it's important to keep looking until you find someone who's the right fit. Next, be positive. Your involvement in the life of a person with depression is a huge help even if you don't say a word. The key to offering depression support is to keep a positive and encouraging attitude. Don't plead, scold, or cajole someone who's dealing with depression. Just be there. You may feel like you should come up with something insightful that will snap your loved one out of their mood, but you can't. Let the therapist address the depression while you focus on simply being a positive presence. And last, point out improvements. It's very common for people with depression to stop their medication because they think either the meds aren't working or they don't need it anymore. Noting improvements as part of your depression support can show your loved one that the medication and other treatments are having an effect. All of this, of course, must be kept within healthy boundaries that we set for our own mental health and as a means of teaching our loved ones how to receive support in a healthy manner. And as always, consider reaching out for your own therapist to help you navigate all the emotions that go along with helping your brother. God bless. Sister Anonymous is up next. Could you explore the difficulty of living with same-sex attraction as a religious? There is a broad culture of don't ask, don't tell, and I believe it's good not to be transparent on everything, but still, it can sometimes be an additional struggle not to be able to talk about it. Well, let's start by praying for sister and all religious sisters, brothers, nuns, and priests that they may find themselves in an environment that supports their entire selves their unique personalities, and all the gifts that God has given them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you so much for the question, and thank you so much for answering God's call for your life. It's always so exciting to receive questions from religious, so thank you so much. I reached out to a friend of mine, also a religious sister, to get her thoughts around this, recognizing full well that I don't have the best perspective on your question and situation as a married heterosexual man. So just a heads up, my thoughts on this are guided by her wonderful help. I imagine it would be difficult to enter a religious community, each with its own individual culture around this topic, and to try to navigate how to be comfortable, how to fit in, and how to be true to oneself. The question that really comes to the surface here is, what is proper to talk about, and to whom, and what are the boundaries around that? And perhaps, maybe more specifically for religious who identify as LGBT, the question might be, who do I tell, and is it appropriate to tell most people, or few people? The environment around this is different for different orders. There may be shame in some orders, and as a result, absolutely no one talks about it. Others are probably in between, and others are perhaps too open about it. The most important thing to remember when we find ourselves in situations like this is that we only have to share things about ourselves with people we trust. Once we build relationships with those around us, once we feel safe with them, we might decide to share things about ourselves that might leave us feeling vulnerable, but that's always based on trust, mutual respect, and safety. 
Of course, if there are certain people that we choose not to tell things about, especially in the context of religious life, we may have another question arise in our hearts. Am I being deceptive? Am I being deceptive if I don't tell those around me, especially those who might see me as their close friends? But again, we need to reflect on our comfort, our safety, our own mental health as we explore this idea of self-disclosure to those around us. We aren't deceiving anyone if we're choosing not to disclose something about ourselves until we feel really, really ready to share. We're taking care of ourselves, and that's so important to remember. We'll be praying for you, sister. A different anonymous brings us home. My brother was diagnosed with existential OCD last year, and it's rocked our family's world. I think we had to overcome a lot of mental health stigma we hadn't realized we had, especially in the way we all handled our relationships with my brother as he was growing up. In his teenage years, he decided to leave the church right before being confirmed and never looked back. Most recently, as we understand more about his OCD diagnosis and start realizing that his extreme fear of death and resulting panic attacks were probably related to the OCD all along, I find myself wondering if his distancing from our faith is a consequence of that anxiety. I was wondering if you could point me in the direction of any resources that might help me understand what he's going through a little better. First, let's all join together in prayer for Anonymous, her family, and her brother, that the Blessed Mother may intercede for them to experience peace, comfort, and community as a loving family focused on the health and well-being of every member. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother, to thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. I'm so happy to hear that you and your family are looking for ways to support your brother. OCD can be a painful and debilitating experience, and thankfully, there are evidence-based practices out there that can make a huge impact in the lives of those experiencing OCD. But let's start by looking at what existential OCD actually is. This is from the International OCD Foundation. Many people in the general public and the media have a very stereotypical image of what OCD is all about. Individuals with OCD are seen as people who either wash their hands too frequently or are super organized and perfectionistic. Thus, it can be difficult to recognize the types of OCD that don't resemble these common stereotypes. The reality is there are many forms OCD can take. The types and topics of your obsessions and compulsions are limited only by your brain's ability to imagine. OCD is insidious as it seems to have a way of finding out what will bother someone the most. Many of us grapple with existential questions about the meaning of the life, the universe, existence, and so on at one point in our lives. However, for those with a type of OCD called existential OCD or philosophical OCD, these questions can become all-consuming. Existential OCD involves intrusive, repetitive thinking about questions which cannot possibly be answered and which may be philosophical or frightening in nature or both. The questions usually revolve around the meaning, purpose, and reality of life or the existence of the universe or even one's own existence. These same questions might come up in a university philosophy or physics class. However, most people can leave such classes and read about these topics and then move on to other thoughts afterward. Similar to other forms of OCD, individuals with existential OCD can't just drop these questions. Existential obsessions are often difficult to recognize as they might seem like questions many of us wonder about and sometimes uh, and then move on from, you know, with the shrug of a shoulder. Existential obsessions might also be confused with the kind of thoughts people experience when they're depressed, continually going over negative thoughts about how meaningless life may seem. But existential OCD is far more complicated than that. 
Individuals with existential obsessions typically spend hours going over and over these questions and ideas and may become extremely anxious or depressed. When they seek help, they may be seen as suffering from worries or existential fears or be misguided as suffering from generalized anxiety disorder. However, when a person battles ongoing, intrusive, repetitive, persistent, anxiety-provoking, doubtful thoughts of this nature, it is most likely existential OCD. With that in mind, it could, this is me again, very well be that your brother distanced himself from the faith as a means of coping with the anxiety created by his existential OCD. And between wanting to support him with his mental health and wanting to guide him back into the church and back into a relationship with God, it can all be pretty overwhelming to try and support him. I think it's best to tread lightly on the faith conversations and know that God is patient and better at bringing people back than we are. And he's also infinitely understanding of where we're at because of our mental health. He loves your brother. He understands him. And he'll lovingly wait for him. Please know that we'll be praying for you and your brother moving forward. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.